0: Hey guys, I hope you're having a great week. Welcome back to the podcast. So this week we're going to be doing meningitis. One of our receptionists asked me to do this. And so one thing to remember, remember, I am not a neurologist. You know, neurologists deal specifically with the brain and the spinal fluid and the spinal cord and nerves. And that is not my, my specialty, right? So I'm going to try to break down Meningitis as best as I can as an emergency practitioner, not going into a lot of the really um, intricate details of a lot of it, just trying to explain like what meningitis is, like how we diagnose it, um, how we treat it, things like that. So first we need to start off with some anatomy because when I say meningitis, most people think that I'm just talking about some sort of brain problem and not really understanding what meningitis actually is. So we're going to start with what's called the meninges. Meninges are this layer, this fibrous or membranous cover that covers the brain and the spinal cord. So it usually is composed of three layers. This isn't going to be huge to know, like really meningitis means that there are inflammation of one, two, or three of these layers of the meninges. But I think that it's kind of cool to know that what these three layers are, especially because there are things that people don't even realize, like where they're getting certain injections and where spinal fluid and stuff is held. So I'm just going to talk about that real quick. So like I said, there are three layers of meninges. There's the dura mater, that is the layer that is the closest to the skull. The middle layer is called the arachnoid matter and the layer closest or hugging, basically the brain, is called the pia matter. So with the dura matter, that's the one that's closest to our skull, between the area of the skull and the dura matter is a space that people who have had um, kids and epidurals will know well. This is called the epidural space. Epi just means above. Dura is the dura matter, so it's above the dura, so between the dura and the skull. So, like I said, this is actually where uh, moms get epidurals at. So, uh, the other really cool, interesting thing about dura—the name dura itself actually means hard mother. So, like this, just you know, the epidural space is just basically showing like how badass moms are, and I think it's. Amazing that they'll even get an injection that's in your epidural space. So kudos to you. The space that's going to be between the dura matter and the arachnoid matter, so this is between the dura matter, which is closest to the skull, and the middle layer, which is the arachnoid matter. Real quick with the arachnoid matter, it's called arachnoid matter because if you look at it, it actually looks like a spider web. It's super crazy. Like there's like just all these like different entanglements of things. It's not put together as like a very um, intricate, cohesive thing. It's not symmetrical by any means. It's just like this giant like spider web type appearance of, of this layer. But the space in between that, between where the dura matter and arachnoid matter are, that is called the subdural space. Now, typically, there's actually like not a lot of space that's there. They call it the subdurable space, even though that there's like not a lot there. Uh, and even when we break down that name, subdura, we talked about the epidural, so above the dura. This is subdural, meaning we are below the dura. But if you've ever heard of anybody having a brain bleed or something, like they'll usually use the, the term a subdural hematoma meaning that it is in that space between the dura and the arachnoid matter. And that's where usually you'll get like this separation or the space that forms because of a brain bleed that happens there. Brain bleeds can happen anywhere, but that's like the most common place that you'll see them. Then we talked about the pia matter. So pia matter is the closest to the brain. And the pia matter, like you have to think of it almost as like shrink wrap, on your brain, or even like you know how you put your your jackets and stuff into one of those bags and then you use the vacuum and it just sucks out all the air from it and it just makes all these crinkles and stuff. That's what that is. Like that is what the PM matter is. It like makes this really tight crinkly shrink wrap brain, basically. So the space that's between the PM matter and the arachnoid matter, that is called the subarachnoid space. So, sub meaning below, arachnoid, we already have talked about, the subarachnoid space. This is actually where cerebral spinal fluid is. This is going to come up later, so this is why this is important. But this is really close to the brain. Like, Like, here are the layers we've just talked about. We talked about the skull, we talked about the epidural space, the dura matter, the subdural space, the arachnoid matter, And then all the way down to this subarachnoid space. And then finally to the pia matter and the brain. I mean, that is ridiculously close to the brain, right? Like this fluid is very, very close to it. So the fluid is there for lots of different reasons, but the biggest reason is to help protect the brain. So we have like kind of a lot of fluid that jostles around in there. So that if we have impact, it impacts more of the fluid, not necessarily our brain so much. But also when we think about when we have to take fluid from the cerebral spinal fluid, we have to go pretty darn far down to be able to get to it. And that's also just what the function is of our meninges in the first place, all those layers we just talked about, is to provide protection from trauma from the brain. It also provides a blood supply to things like the brain and the spinal cord and also the fluid or that cerebral spinal fluid that we were just talking about that's in that subarachnoid space. So there's there's lots of different things that our meninges are needed for. All right, don't worry, there's not a quiz on each one of the meninges, but it's just to let you know like, what, like, there are three different layers of meninges. When we talk about meningitis, it's not necessarily one specifically of all of those, it's just inflammation of some part of the meninges. So that gets us into like our definitions. So we talked about meningitis. So meningitis is the inflammation of the membranous covers of the brain and spinal spinal cord. So that is inflammation of those meninges, the dura matter, the arachnoid matter, and the pia matter we just talked about. Now, there are other types of things that we kind of classify other under meningitis, but they do have kind of their own names. So we're just going to kind of talk about those really quickly as well. There's also encephalitis. So encephala means the brain. So encephalitis is going to be inflammation of the brain. There's also going to be meningioencephalitis, which means the inflammation of the covering of the brain and spinal cord, that's the meninges, and the brain itself. So we have a lot of swelling that's going on in there, tons and tons of inflammation. All right, how do we even determine that a pet might potentially have meningitis? What are those clinical signs? So It can be like just really, really minor things. Like somebody could come in and literally just say that their dog is lethargic. Think about every single disease that I have mentioned. Every single thing is that the pet is lethargic, right? Well, maybe not the amphetamines. Amphetamines, they're quite the opposite. But all the rest of them, right? Everybody's lethargic. So there's so many things that this can be from. So we often get these things confused, but we have to kind of look at a lot of these other clinical signs as well. The next big thing is that they usually have a fever. This is why it's super important to get a temperature, even on dogs that are really painful. So I hear a lot of people are like, well, I I didn't want to lift up their tail because it's just so painful. So I didn't get a temperature. But that actually is going to be part of my diagnosis. If I know that the pet is having back pain, and I see that the dog has a fever, that I'm very concerned that that dog has meningitis. But let's say you didn't get a temperature, I didn't push it, the dog has back pain, I will most likely misdiagnose that dog because of that. So taking a temperature is extremely important, even in these situations. So clinical signs again, fever. Neck pain and back pain is a big one. So it could be just neck pain or it could be just back pain, or it could be both. Um, it might be localized to a very specific part of the back or it could be along the entire back. It, it's usually going to be though, that it's they are pretty painful somewhere in their neck or back because think about where the meninges are, right? They're around the the brain and it's around the spinal cord. And it's one continuous thing. like it goes from the spinal cord up into the brain, there's like this little hole that you have in your in your skull called the foramen magnum, and that allows things to go in and out from your brain or from your skull. And that's how these meninges connect from the brain down to our spinal cord. So it would make sense that if this is along the spine, where the spinal cord is, that they're going to be painful in that area. I'm just going to make a note real quick. My dog was scratching at the door. So if you hear a lot of scratching in the background, that's why. She just realized that I was not upstairs with her and kind of freaked out a bit. So sorry if there was scratching at the door right there. But anyways, so we are saying fever, neck pain, back pain. They might also be really stiff when they're walking. Like it's going to look like they're just painful no matter how they step or no matter how, to, how they walk. They could also have some like muscle spasms. This typically occurs right next to the spine, because again, we're dealing with the spine and the brain that's usually causing this, but it'll be that they're pretty like painful and you see like these little tiny twitches right next to the spine, especially if you start pushing on those muscles. And it could also be that they vomit sometimes. That's just from all the inflammation building up, creating these toxins that just make them like feel like so painful that they're nauseous, basically. Right, that's specifically the clinical signs of just meningitis. Now, when you're thinking about meningioencephalitis, we're thinking about things that are also going to be affecting the brain. So the brain does so many things, right? Like it is, it tells you your personality, your memories, um, how to walk, how to talk. Uh, for dogs, bark, whatever. But you know, there's there's lots of different things that your brain does. So there's, it always kind of depends on like where that swelling or that inflammation is occurring as to what is going to be affected. Think about people who have a stroke, right? They usually have some sort of brain bleed, basically, in some part of their brain. Some people who have a stroke, have it to where they like drag their foot, they have a droopy leg or droopy eyes. Other people will have difficulty walking and some people never come out of, of like a coma type state from it. And it all just depends on where that, that brain bleed is. Same thing for our meningitis or for, sorry, for our meningoencephalitis. It depends on where that inflammation is as to what clinical signs we're going to see. But in general, some of the things are going to be like just depression. You can have blindness um, partial paralysis. So you might see like a, like two legs on one side that aren't working, like the whole right side isn't working, or maybe there's drooping of the face. It could be that they're really incoordinated, so they like kind of cross their legs over. Think about a normal dog. They don't normally cross their legs, uh, and that's for a reason. Like their, their nerves are telling them that that is incorrect to be able to do that. They don't even have to think about it. It just happens. But when they... When they are, when their brain isn't working, functioning correctly, then we can have that happen. You can have seizures, um, behavioral changes. Some people, so some people will talk about them becoming extremely aggressive suddenly. You can have agitation. They can't sleep because their brain basically hurts. Uh, you can have head tilts and circling. You can also have like difficulty eating because when they have to like chew their muscles around their brain or around their their skull, it, it puts pressure on that part of the skull, which is painful. Or even comas from this as well. Right, what are some of the causes of meningitis? So there are lots of different types of causes. The, I'm just going to name kind of the general ones. We'll talk about a little more in depth on some of them. So in general, our causes are going to be something bacterial, a virus, a fungus, some sort of parasite, um, some sort of chemicals that can cause these things, an autoimmune disorder, or our favorite, idiopathic. We don't know, just unknown. We don't know what caused this. So the most common ones in dogs are actually going to be viruses, protozoa, which are a type of parasite, rickettsia, which is a type of bacteria that's usually from ticks specifically, and types of fungus. So some of the viral examples, things are like the one really well-known one that we just don't see very often is going to be rabies. So rabies specifically wants to go to the brain. Like that's what it does. That's how we diagnose it is by by looking at the brain. There's no other way to diagnose it. That's because that's what rabies wants to do, it go directly to the brain. Parvovirus is another one. We've talked about parvovirus like going to the heart, but it can actually go to the brain as well. Adenovirus, so in your vaccines for dogs, you're going to see DA. PP, right? Distemper, adenovirus, and parainfluenza and parvo. So we we actually vaccinate specifically for this. And most of these will get into the brain just by like catching a ride on other cells because we have something called the blood-brain barrier, which doesn't allow many things through the bloodstream into the brain. Like there's just this this really thin barrier that just doesn't allow a lot of things in. But if it catches a ride on some other type of cell, some sort of white blood cell or something, then it is potentially going to be able to enter that blood-brain barrier and go directly to the brain. Some viruses for cats, uh, the most common one is actually going to be FIP, so feline infectious peritonitis. There are two forms of that, and I'll go over this on some other podcasts, but one is called the wet form, where they have a lot of fluid in their abdomen, and one is called the dry form. The dry form is extremely difficult to be able to diagnose because it could just be anything. It could be some neurological thing, it could be diarrhea, like it could be anything. But Um, it does tend to like to go after the brain. So kittens and stuff or cats who are two years old-ish who start having seizures or having some of these other symptoms that are like meningitis, we start worrying about FIP. Some of the autoimmune ones, um, this is actually things that are really common in certain breeds, usually pugs, Maltese, Yorkies, Pointers, and Greyhounds. Autoimmune just means that the autoimmune your own body is attacking itself. It could be from a number of different reasons, but typically what happens is whatever it is that's upset the body in the first place, like let's say a bee came along and stung them. Well, now the the body starts making antibodies or starts making these these soldiers to say like, hey, anytime you see this this antigen or this protein that looks like a bee sting, you need to go and attack it. Well, maybe those little particles from the bee sting then go into the cerebral spinal fluid or into that um, meninges. And now the body thinks that it has to attack it and it starts attacking itself instead of attacking just that little protein from the bee sting. Parasites is another common one. So some of the things we don't think about... Again, I'm sorry about the noises. Uh, my dog is making snor- snorting noises... But some of the other parasites are going to be things like Toxoplasma gondii. That is something we commonly see in cat litter. I don't know if anybody's had this before, but a lot of people will say, "Well, I had to get rid of my cat because of the fact that my doctor told me that they has they have like this this um, disease that they carry called Toxoplasma gondii, and it can kill your baby." Well, yes and no. Yes, they can have Toxoplasma gondii. It's not as common in our indoor cats, though. This is typically our indoor-outdoor cats that we see this with. And the only way that it can actually like grow and then be passed on to somebody else is if the litter box is dirty. So it has to sit in there for more than three days in order for this to occur. But let's say your dog goes outside and eats cat poop outside that's been sitting there for five days then yeah, absolutely, Toxoplasma gondii is a potential there. It can even be from other wildlife and stuff as well. It just tends to be with cats. Another one is Diferleria imidus. If anybody recognizes that that term, that's actually from mosquitoes. It's heartworm, basically. You can have Toxicaracanus. Again, if anybody recognizes that, maybe you can go ask um, LaToya and just be like, you know, tell her that you know this super fancy word, Toxicaracanus, and she can show you what it looks like. Those are roundworms. Just roundworms can go into the brain. Cuterebra, you know, those creepy little insects that that burrow into the skin, usually from flies. So that cuterebra can burrow into places like the brain or the spinal cord. There's osteotania, which is tapeworms. So tapeworms come from fleas, right? So this is another big reason to talk to people about flea prevention because if they get tapeworms, it potentially can go to the brain and then causes meningitis. All right, another cause we just talked about was going to be autoimmune disorders, right? So the body attacking itself. Um, Autoimmune disorders are actually kind of common in certain breeds of dogs, mostly smaller breeds, but it's going to be pugs, Maltese, Yorkies, Uh, pointers, and greyhounds that they're most common in. It can happen to anybody again, but those tend to be the most common breeds. And then the least likely to cause these meningitis is going to be bacterial infections. So this is because the nervous system usually has this protective barrier that we've kind of talked about a little little bit already called the blood-brain barrier. Like you have to think of it as like a sieve, basically, like only tiny, tiny, tiny particles can get through there. You can't have bigger particles or bigger viruses, bigger bacteria go through there. It won't fit. So most of the time, we have some sort of um, you know immune system set up to make sure that doesn't happen. But let's say there's a weakened blood-brain barrier or an injured barrier, then yeah, the hole becomes a lot bigger. Then bigger things can go through there. This is most commonly found when we have like some sort of spread from places near the head or the the spine. So the most common places is the sinuses, um, inner ear, the vertebrae. So your your spinal cord, right, or your spine, the discs of the spine that sit in between each one of the vertebrae. Any of those are very common to like kind of spread that bacterial infection in there. It can also occur from some migrating foreign bodies like grassons. When they sniff up the grass-on, it goes into the sinus, which is going to go into the brain and can cause a meningitis. It can be from bite wounds. So if there's a bite wound that's like right next to the spine, that could potentially cause a meningitis. There was the the stabbing case that I talked about before, like that was one that I was concerned that the dog could potentially get meningitis because the stabbing was right next to the spine. Like I could feel the spine. So I had to worry about things like meningitis and account for that in the the antibiotics that I was going to give. Now, most people will ask too, like because of all these things, the bacterial infections, viral infections, things like that, are these things contagious? And they're not Ninety-nine percent of them are not going to be contagious. Some of the parasites, sure, you know, it's if it's in your brain, it's probably not going to be as much contagious because it's not in the body as much. But it could be from parasites. But all the rest of them—the viruses, the protozoa, the tick-borne diseases, the fungus, the bacteria—none of those are usually going to be a contagious thing. All right, the next thing is going to be. Um, if there are any breeds that are kind of predisposed to meningitis, so there are multiple breeds. Yes, these are the most common ones, though. So you have beagles, Bernese Mountain Dogs, pugs, German Short Hair Pointers, Nova Scotia Duck Tolling Retrievers. I didn't even know what that was till I got up here. Uh, Golden Retrievers, Rottweilers, Maltese, Yorkies, and Greyhounds are the most predisposed. Can anybody get meningitis? Yes, absolutely. But when we see some of these breeds, like if I see a pug and I see that it's having back pain, I start worrying for it potentially having meningitis. The ages that we normally diagnose this is usually between like two to four years old, but it again can be any age. You can have them as little puppies, you can have meningitis as, as, um, Adults, as geriatric adults. It doesn't matter. Anybody could potentially get meningitis. Now, how do we diagnose it? Usually, the first thing that we're going to do is we are going to start out with things like blood work and x-rays. Mostly, this is to try to start ruling other things out. Because if I push on the back and it's painful, then I start worrying that the dog has a disc problem. You know, IVDD, which we'll go into later, but introvertebral disc disease... I think that if I'm pushing on the back and it's painful, it's probably because the dog either sprained its back muscles or it has this disc problem that's pushing on the spinal cord. We also worry that it could be something like polyarthritis. So that means that there's inflammation of multiple joints. So if I push on the neck and I'm kind of pushing the shoulder area, I might think that it's painful in the shoulders. If I move the front leg and I kind of bend the elbow, it might seem painful because the dog is now actually putting more weight on the other leg, making it seem like it's painful in the elbow. Or it could be pancreatitis. If I push in the area that's right behind the ribs, that's kind of where the pancreas lives. And if I get pain just in that area, then I might start to wonder if it's a pancreatitis that's the cause or even maybe that it's the kidneys, and that it could be um, an infection of the kidneys or pyelonephritis. So we're usually doing blood work so we can check to see if there are things like elevated kidney values, or are there? Is there a urinary tract infection, or are is there evidence of a pancreatitis? For IVDD, we can't see that on blood work or x-rays. Like you might be able to see some some little like white spots between each one of the vertebrae. It's called calcification. But that's not necessarily the cause of the problem. We just know that it's there. So x-rays, we're still looking for other things, making sure we don't see signs of infection in things like the, the um, spine. Because if it's there, if there are signs of infection there. Then I do worry that, yes, this is meningitis. But usually we're doing those x-rays just in that blood work just to kind of rule things out. And if we find something, great. If not, then we kind of move on to the next steps. So the best next step is going to be doing something called a CSF tap or a cerebral spinal fluid tap. That's basically where the pet is put under anesthesia because they have to be very still. Remember where I told you the cerebral spinal fluid is? Like technically you can get in another area, in another spot, but, but just think about in general where you have to go. You have to go multiple layers deep and almost touch the spinal cord. Like that is deep. If it was the brain we were talking about, like that's like almost touching the brain. We can't do that though. We can't go near the brain because we have the skull on the way. So there's no way for us to get the spinal fluid from there. So instead we have to go in the back Usually pretty low in the back is where we go, like we go in the, it's called the lumbar area, but on the lower back, essentially. And we have to stick that needle in. And these these dura that we talked about, these men- meninges, are very thin, like they are tiny. So even just the slightest little movement will make you go into the wrong space or into the wrong dura. So that's why it's really important that they stay very, very still. So they usually have to be sedated for this. We shave the area, we clean it really well, and then we can put a needle in there and try to get that fluid out. That is the most actual, reliable, and accurate way to be able to diagnose the type of meningitis. So they usually will do cultures, so they'll send it out to the lab to try to to have to see if like, there's any bacteria that grows from that fluid to tell us if there is bacteria that's causing this. They will usually send it out for a fluid analysis, which again will kind of give us a better indication of what's causing this. When there are a lot of neutrophils, which if anybody listened to our to the podcast right before this about blood work, you'll kind of know what some of these are. But neutrophils are a white blood cell. So if there's lots of neutrophils, and there's tons of protein, then it might mean that this is a bacterial problem or a steroid-responsive problem. If there's a lot of eosinophils, that usually means that there are parasites that are the cause of this. If there are lots of lymphocytes, then it usually means it's a viral infection that's causing this. And then we're also looking for bacteria as well. And then if none of that kind of works out, we also do something called fluid PCR, It's basically where they put it through this thing to look to see if there's genes of certain diseases, like certain viruses or certain bacteria. So it's basically looking at the DNA of anything in that spinal fluid to see if it is something that's an unknown particle or something that shouldn't be there. So they're looking specifically for like parvo DNA. They're looking for for tapeworm DNA. they're looking for all this DNA inside of our cerebral spinal fluid to know what the potential problem is. And then sometimes, like we go in one specific spot to be able to get that cerebral spinal fluid. But maybe this is what's called a focal uh, meningitis, meaning it's only in one spot. Maybe it's only in the middle of the back. And we don't get enough cells to be able to know exactly what it is that's causing this. So sometimes they have to do an MRI where they're under anesthesia to be able to take pictures and figure out where that particular lesion is to then do another spinal fluid tap on that specific spot to see what's causing that. So in general, like I said, we are doing blood work and x-rays to rule things out. We're doing a cerebral spinal fluid tap and we're doing an MRI. Now, the next big question is Has anybody seen us do a cerebral spinal fluid tap? Maybe a couple of people have seen Dr. K do it, but it is not something we commonly do. Again, you have to be so close to that spine, or that, that um, spinal cord, to be able to get that fluid sample. If you're not in the right spot, you may not get the correct fluid and then you're not going to get the correct diagnostic. Or maybe you go too far and you hit a blood vessel and you're not going to get a diagnosis from that because now you just have a bunch of blood in there and not what you actually need. So it's a very tricky thing to do. It is not just something that's super easy. Like I make it sound easy because I'm like, ah, you put them under anesthesia, stick a needle in, voila, you're done but it is not easy. It is very difficult to do. I've only done it a couple of times, but most of the time we send them over to a neurologist to be able to do the CSF taps. All right, now how is this treated? So as soon as we kind of have an answer to like what the cause is, that's how we know how to treat things. If this is an autoimmune disorder, it usually means that we're going to use steroids or some other medication that's going to tell the body to stop overreacting. To stop trying to attack itself. If there is an infection, like a rickettsial infection, a protozoa, or bacteria, usually those require antibiotics. So we're going to put them on a very specific antibiotic depending on which kind of, like, you know, rickettsia or whatever infection we found. Fungal infections usually need very specific antifungal medications because. It's not easy to penetrate into the areas that we need them to penetrate into. And some of them can be very toxic. So we have to use very specific antifungal medications. And then otherwise, it's really just supportive care until we get some of that stuff back. So it usually means some pain relief. You know, if they're in the hospital, giving them fentanyl, large amounts of fentanyl. It might be anticonvulsants, so anti-seizure medications to try to help keep their seizures under control. Fluids to help keep them supported. And nutritional support, again, to help keep their body supported because they're not going to want to eat and they're not going to want to drink when they feel terrible. And then sometimes physical therapy because they might be in that kennel for a week before they even like start to try to get up. So doing physical therapy in the hospital is really important, whether it's us doing it or Ken doing it. You know, having him come over and just doing like range of motion stuff with the, the pet whenever he can is is really helpful because that's going to help the dog get on their feet faster. And one of the things to kind of help owners understand is that this treatment is for a long period of time. This isn't going to be just like, a, we're going to give them medication for a week and their meningitis is going to go away. Like this is months, months and months of doing medication, tapering them off of medications to get them to the point to where they their meningitis is gone. And even then it still potentially could come back. So uh, usually people need to be in this for the long haul, knowing it's not just gonna be like a you know five-day course of medication and they'll be a, they'll be done. Like this is months and months of medications that they have to do. Months and months of of rechecks to make sure that the pet is doing well. All right, how is their prognosis? It's usually the next thing I get. Are they gonna survive this or is this something that they're gonna have long-lasting damage from? that kind of depends actually. So we don't usually know if there's going to be long lasting damage or not. You know, there could be damage to the brain, there could be damage to the spinal cord. And really like the only way we can know that is based on doing like MRIs. But you know, not everybody has that money to just do an MRI afterwards just to see what was damaged. So we don't actually know like what their long lasting damage is going to be. I've definitely seen Dogs that have come back from meningitis and had no, no ill problems at all. There was no issues, no long-term problems. And I've seen one dog that had a lot of long-term problems from it. They definitely had seizures consistently after that. So there's really like not a good way to know whether they're going to have long-term problems or not. It also just depends on like how severe that damage was. And again, like I can't physically see that without doing things like an MRI to know what kind of damage was done. All right, next we're going to talk about how common this is. So the nice thing is that I've said a lot of like crazy things about this, right? But the nice thing is, is that this is not a very common disease. Like It's not something we're diagnosing every day or every week or even every month. You know, it's not a very frequent thing. So even though it's pretty scary, you know, we don't have to deal with it as much as we normally would have to. Obviously, for somebody who's a neurologist, like that's what people go there for. So yeah, for them, they're going to see a lot more often than we do, but it's just not as common. The next question I usually get asked is, can we just try medications rather than going to a neurologist, getting a cerebral spinal fluid tap? So yes and no. That is not ideal whatsoever because think about all the things that I just listed that are problems that could potentially cause this. You know, an autoimmune disorder, a parasite, a bacteria, a fungus. So I don't know which medication to use to be able to know how to treat this pet. So ideally going to a neurologist, getting that spinal fluid tap is going to be the best way in order to be able to diagnose it and know which medication to give. And also there might be contraindications for giving certain medications. I don't want to give out specific fungal medications because I could actually cause a lot of damage to other organs by doing some of the fungal medications that they didn't actually need. Or let's say if it had an autoimmune disorder or a bacterial infection. If I treat with antibiotics and antibiotics only, and it's a... it's an autoimmune problem or a steroid responsive problem, then I'm not going to fix this problem at all. Or let's say I'm worried that it could be an autoimmune problem, but I'm giving antibiotics as well. And it ends up being a bacterial problem. Maybe I've given the wrong antibiotics this whole time. Now we have to like backtrack to get the cerebral spinal fluid, you know, and put them on the correct antibiotic. Or if there's an infection and I put them on antibiotics And then I also put them on a steroid. Steroids do good things and bad things. And some of those bad things are making infections worse. So it's not ideal for us just to put them on medications. But I always talk to owners about like, what is their expectation and what are they willing to do? If they cannot financially go see a neurologist, you know, they're barely scraping by with what we're doing just on our exam, then I talk to them about the risks. You know, we can put them on antibiotics and put them on an anti-inflammatory or a steroid and see if it does improve. But there's a chance that it doesn't. And if you would go see a neurologist, then I'm going to say not to put them on any medications besides pain medication. So that way they can see the neurologist and then be able to get a diagnosis and determine what the next steps are going to be. But if they can't, like I said, if they do not have the financial means to be able to do that, then yes, I'm going to give them medication because I'm going to give them their best shot at trying to help them. And then one of the last questions I tend to get is, can you see meningitis with an x-ray? So so no, you cannot. And if this is something that there is swelling in the of the brain, the skull blocks all of our x-rays. We cannot really do really good x-rays through bones, so we wouldn't be able to see the brain at all on an x-ray. I can't even see the spinal cord on an x-ray. I can see where it lives. I can see where each one of the vertebrae are connected, but we cannot physically see the spinal cord. And meningitis, we talked about, was the inflammation of the like coating around those that spinal cord. So if I can't even see the spinal cord and these meninges are tiny, tiny, like paper thin things, I'm not gonna be able to see those either. So we can't see meningitis on an X-ray either. Not even as an ultrasound, again, we like can't penetrate that deep in order to be able to see those things. It usually has to be the cerebrospinal fluid tap or it needs to be some sort of MRI to be able to find those things. Okay, hopefully this was gave a little bit more clarity like what the meninges are, what meningitis is, things that can cause them and how we kind of treat these things and why it's really hard for us to diagnose these things as well. So if you have any questions, let me know. Like I said, you can always email me. You can grab me in the hallway, grab me on your way out and kind of ask me questions. If you have a topic, let me know. Um, And I'm more than happy to go over all of those things with you guys. All right, now we're going to do story time. So this is a story about how I um, do not know how to fix anything. So you can ask my wife. I am not a handy guy. Like I'm really good at being an emergency veterinarian. I am not good at like putting things together or hanging things up or clearing spaces. Uh, I'm just not good at those things. So we need to clear this space that's in front of like our house area kind of over by the chickens. And there's these giant wood planks that these people who were here before us put put down. I'm assuming that they put it there for like a trailer type situation or maybe a motorhome. It's kind of hard to tell. But there's like four big planks that are up there. So I talked to my wife and I was like, well, I got to cut down all the bamboo and then I got to take out these big plank things, which by the way, if anybody wants bamboo... You're welcome to come over to my house to get it. I have a ton of bamboo. I hate the bamboo, um, but it's like a lot of it's cut down. So if you need it for like anything, you need it for a gate. I I have no idea. Whatever you want bamboo for, come get it. Anyways, so tell my wife, well, I got to cut down all this bamboo, but then I also have to get these stupid boards up. And these things are huge. So I go to start digging them out and realize that the people put rocks all the way around those, these giant boards. So it's not like I can just like easily dig down in the ground to like get underneath them and pull them up. I actually have to like pull away a bunch of rocks every time I dig in order to be able to get to it. The other complication is this stupid bamboo. It grows everywhere. And so these these rhizomes or basically these, um, roots that go all around, they grow up into things as well. So I had had a bamboo shoot that grew up into one of these, these wood planks. And so I couldn't get it off the ground because it was stuck in this bamboo, so luckily, my neighbor, who's so nice, he's like the nicest guy. And he knows that like, I struggle when it comes to these types of things. He saw me outside and he came over and he's like, hey, you know, what, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm trying to get these stupid boards up and these people like put rocks all around them. It's going to take me forever. Like I'd already been working on it for an hour at that point. And he's like, well, um, I have like, you know, a pry bar. And I was like, I don't understand what a pry bar is going to do. He's like, oh, I'll show you. Well, well, let me go get this pry bar and I'll come back. I was like, okay. So I'm like digging these stupid rocks out again, trying to get this root out from underneath the the uh, board. And he comes over and he's like, watch. You just like put your cinder block here. You put this pry here, and it lifts everything up. It literally all three. We got all three or all four of those planks out in three minutes. I was like, that would have taken me days. Days and days to do because I would have had to pull all these stupid rocks out from the side there. So, you know, I always love learning things. Um, I'm really grateful that I have handy neighbors since I am not handy. But uh, it just goes to show like all of the like interesting mechanical things that people know how to do that just are not intuitive to other people. My son is always talking about it. he's like, oh, I'm just like so smart. Like not not me, but him. He thinks he's just so smart, right? He's the smartest kid ever. And I just talk to him all the time about like, well, look, you know, like I am not dumb, but, you know, there are definitely things that I just don't know about. I like learning about tons of different things. I listen to tons of podcasts on lots of different subjects, but um, there's definitely going to be things that I just don't know how to do. And that's what other people do know how to do. That's what they are experts in. And my neighbor wasn't, uh, he wasn't like a construction worker or anything. He just learned how to do a lot of these things. He picked a lot of those things up. He was actually a financial guy before. So I was just thinking it's super interesting. I was, again, super grateful. Had to bring him eggs because I was like, thank you so much. You just saved me like five days worth of work. It was amazing. All right. Thank you guys. And again, if you want bamboo, please come get it. I want it out of there. It needs to be gone. All right. Have a great day.